Greetings, 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 and warm salutations. I am Jay Severin, at Giant Pod Pundit, and this is episode 55, count them, trade them, collect them all, episode 55 of Invasion of the Giant Pod Pundit, a name, by the way, that I'm considering changing. We'll talk about that soon. Um, Comments to our exclusive uh, web address, our email for this show, for my partners on this show, and I'm just, I'm speaking slowly because I'm trying to remember on another memory track what that email is. Oh, and I've remembered, it is all lowercase, no spaces, Severin at gmail.com. Excelsior. <laughs> of the Giant Pod Pundit with Jay Severin. That's J-T-S-E-V-E-R-I-N at gmail.com. And that's, uh, I don't mention that online. That is a special uh, email for us to, for me really to receive your comments, things you would like said on air, uh, questions, complaints, criticisms, and uh, and ideally a lot of flattery. This is episode 55, The Art of the Media Deal. This one is, is fun. It was the toughest thing about this was I know too much about this subject. And that sound, may sound like the typically immodest self-review that you've come to know and love here, but it this is so much a part of what I did for my clients over a 20 plus year career, 25 years, really. This was, this is so much what I did on a daily basis. There are probably, you know, 10 things essential to the operation of a political consultant. Uh, At least a, you know, a prominent one that was involved in national races as, you know, governors, senators, uh, members of the House, president, and etc. And there is a lot of etc. And this this would be if there were ten things, maybe five things, the most important things that real political consultants with real experience would list as falling on the scale of things they do for their clients that really matter. This would be in the top five. As I say, I uh, I call it for obvious reasons. The art of the media deal. Did you see President Trump's presser with the media today? Today being Wednesday, the 21st of August, year of our Lord, 2019. Did you see? No, or wait, is is today Wednesday? Yeah, today's Wednesday. Uh, Did you see President Trump's presser today? It has become... Donald Trump's, President Trump's, trademark appearance. Every president decides how to deal with the media. It, 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 it is along with picking up poop from the presidential canines, one of the jobs that the president 
likes least. This is having to pick up media from the front lawn, which, you know, sorry for the redundancy. Every president crafts his own manner in which to do so. President Trump fairly recently crafted a beautiful, beautiful piece of stagecraft. Now, with all due respect and affection, President Trump didn't think of this. Though, if there's one thing of all the things they've said, you know, Trump would never think of this himself after, what was it, 18 years, 15 years on The Apprentice as executive producer, I think he learned a lot about the media. And maybe this is something he would have thought of himself. In any case, President Trump and his team have come up with a delicious piece of stagecraft uh, for how to deal with the media. They have, in effect, performed jujitsu. They have turned a media event staged by the media into a media event staged by its victim. He has turned it around on them. So did you see today, or if, if, you, if you didn't, you will see clips of it throughout the day and into the late night, all in this news cycle. You will see President Trump and only President Trump. You will hear the reporters, but you won't see them. You won't see anybody else. And you'll have this kind of a breathless sense of, you know, okay, well, where's he going? What's this, this helicopter? He's in a rush. Hurry. You know, sense of immediacy. As I say, you're going to see cuts of it today and tonight because anyone who talks about the president through this news cycle uh, is going to have to use this until he has another presser. It's a set piece. It's stagecraft with the highest possible stakes. You know, I, I mentioned of the request I have thus far received to cover a particular topic, uh, The far and away, the, the most votes, if you will, is uh, are dealing with uh, my experience in how media works. And an extremely important part of that is how the government works with the media, and in particular, how the president interacts with the media. Like, what's really going on behind the scenes? First point, why speak to the media at all? Most especially if you are receiving routinely negative and unfair coverage, which President Trump has from weeks, months, before he was inaugurated. Answer, this was possible, i.e. ignoring the press almost entirely. This was possible for most of our history until the invention of modern media. And by that I mean the hardware, radio, television, the web. The invention of these things, of these new hardwares, obviously necessitated the invention of fueling them. It necessitated invention of things to feed the beast, as they say. And the fuel is mostly man-made news, which, as we've discussed, is 95% of all news is man-made, man-choreographed. You know, earthquakes, volcanoes are not man-made, but they are also not more than generally about 2% of the news and usually less than that. So the fuel for the media beast is man-made news. 
generally somehow of a political variety as a steady diet. And the media sort of determined up until now how you were thought of. Uh, I mean, I think it's a fair description that I'm not endeavoring to book an appointment here uh, with uh, of friendship with the beast, with the media. So I'm just telling the truth. The beast must be fed, and the beast is fairly stupid. The media is a vora voracious and and utterly, profoundly influential beast. But it can, to a large degree, be tamed, brought under control, because it is largely ignorant. Do you know that when these reporters ask President Trump a question, if they were ever in a debate, if, if pressers evolved such, if the, if the contact with the president by the media evolved such, that it was kind of a debate, even if informally, these reporters are, are like, my father had an old joke uh, after he came out of World War II. I'm not sure I know what it means, but it seems to apply here. You know, that they, they taught this guy at the, at, the, at the diner, the delivery boy, you know, uh, coffee and cruller, coffee and cruller. And the guy came back later to visit. He had a family. You know, he was 35 years old. They said, how are you? And he said, coffee and cruller. You know, because it was all he knew. All these reporters, know, and I know them all. I mean, that some, some of them, a lot of them have aged out. But there was a time, I mean, I've got a, I have a luggage tag from one of my bags uh, that, that I, I wore proudly that, that said, you know, member of traveling press corps uh, for Kennebunkport, Maine, uh, that President Trump, the senior. No, sorry, President Bush, the elder. I used to travel with the press. I was never a member of the White House press corps, but I was, I was bunking with them <laughs> was I ever in Kennebunkport and other places when they went, when they followed the president around, that was, a, a what an honor accorded to me by the white house because I was, I was playing for their team, of course, but I know these people and some of them, I'm not going to name names for their sake. Some of them have been my very best friends and my heroes throughout my life. And for most of them, the media, they're not smart. It used to be that members of the national media were such erudite people that I loved being around them just because they were so clever. They were such witty conversationalists. They could draw on all of the arts and sciences. They were completely educated women and men. Today, they're coffee and cruller. If, if they don't know half of what you and I know about the question they're asking and could never get into any depth about it. I just thought I would mention that because it's important to know you're really not dealing, you're not, you're not dealing here with uh, Scotty Reston and the, the, you're not dealing with uh, Edward R. Murrow. You're not dealing with the, the kind of press corps uh, our parents or grandparents may have known. In any case, the beast must be fed. American presidents 
forced to deal with what they see as hostile national media. And you know, even Obama felt this way, despite the demonstrable fact that the national news media regularly performed the equivalent of sexual acts on Obama, still outlawed in 26 states. All American presidents dislike dealing with the media, all of them, even if they are treated fairly well. Because it's, it's until now, uh, has proved to be an untamable, utterly uncontrollable element, which can bite you in a second. It's like walking around with a ra rattlesnake in your pocket, of which I've been accused, but that's a different story. <clears throat> the only American president in memory who seemed to actually enjoy the banter with the media was, and not coincidentally, John F. Kennedy. Unique was his relationship with national media, perhaps not seen before and certainly not seen since. This is explained, I think, quite simply by the fact that the media adored, adored the Kennedys and the concept of Camelot of which they saw themselves and felt themselves apart. The media felt like they were night members of the Kennedy Roundtable. And because Kennedy, knowing this, knowing their soft spot for a fellow Eastern elite schooled, you know, half of them went to Harvard, the other half went to Yale and a few to Princeton, though being in the media is way too dirty a job for the classic Princeton man. Um, that's another story. So much so that, as you may recall from your history, if it was then still being taught, the Kennedy media were... A, 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 they were as history unreservedly records, fully aware of Kennedy's serial extramarital activities. Serial? Whoa. I mean, a, a, a critic of them would say chronic. I am not a critic of them being libertarian and libertine. I never criticized Kennedy for his personal choices within marriage nor have I ever criticized Bill Clinton nor anyone else for the same. That, that strikes a lot of people who think they know me and who you know, write uh, vicious things to me uh, or say vicious things, especially because of my time over uh, years and years of TV and radio. They say, oh, that can't be possible. It can't be possible that Jay Severin didn't, all that time he was dining out, making his living on the Clintons uh, in, a, in, a, in a manner, yes. But no, you will never find a, a King's Ransom Award awaits anybody who can uncover any evidence. Evidence. Get yourself, don't make a fool of yourself. Get yourself a Black's Law Dictionary or get it online. Find out what evidence is. And then you show up with some evidence that I ever condemned Bill Clinton for sex. Uh, I'll, I'll mow the grass while I'm waiting. Uh, I'll continue to clip the hedges until you get here. Kennedy's serial extramarital activities were known in detail by his media press corps. These days, it would be hysterically condemned. But far more importantly, it would at least be reported. Historians, as well as we, have free license to speculate as to the nature of, well, the nature and magnitude 
of the impact on Kennedy's presidency that such a revelation of his private life may have caused. But one thing we do know, no president in modern times, perhaps no president ever, has enjoyed covering fire laid down by the media, supposed to cover the president warts and all. I doubt it could ever happen again. Though, yes, they did they did uh, continue to perform media sex on uh, Barack Hussein Obama. The bottom line on all of this was and is, remains, that contemporary journalists' reward is given for scandal, attacks on the president, uh, attacks that call him a liar, uh, evidence that he's a thief, or worse, a nationalist. Ah! As a result, and most especially, uh, and most especially pointing to the remarkably contentious relationship between President Trump and the national media, we know going in the Trump presidency would try to minimize it, but it's much easier said than done. And for a guy like Trump to try and be president with that, I'm sorry, to be friendly with that little knot of Eastern college-educated elites that make up the press corps, there are about five colleges represent 80% of the national press corps. So, there emerged, even before he was inaugurated, a mass media vendetta against Trump and his policies and, frankly, all things Trump. These included the things Trump would need to talk about and do in order to be successful. You know, ultimately measured in terms of whether he did it or not and wins a second term or not, which everyone in Trump's inner circle recognizes is going to swing on a slender thread of public opinion. One of his sworn enemies of the media are hoping to sabotage. This being the case, and regular presidential contact with the media being unavoidable and necessary, the question for the Trump presidency soon became, how do we fulfill this obligation? And frankly, uh, an opportunity to do it right so we get our side of the story out. Can we minimize the damage on the president? Can we possibly fulfill this obligation and orchestrate it such that the outcome is neutral or even a little bit positive? Honestly, I know nobody in Washington, and I knew them all, not a soul who believed or believes today that Donald Trump can make uh, of media contact, anything other than a very bloody draw at best. But whatever the internal White House press office model and strategists say, I'd like to share with you a look at the things they most fear and what they have done to deal with it. Point. The problem is, of course, with frequent press access to the White House, is frequent press access to the White House. If they're not getting the president himself, they're going to demand an awful lot of a presidential spokesman. And they're going to be a lot more cheeky with him or her than they would ever be with the president, even one they don't like. And if you don't give them something, if you refuse to feed the beast, they will make shit up. President Trump speaks to the media virtually every day. And yet the 
banner publication in the world, the New York Times, makes shit up every day and puts it on its, not its editorial page, on its front page as news. Y'all have to feed the beast or you encourage them to make up more shit. So sending out, say, Sarah Huckabee to take the bullets for Trump was a superb job as she did. Turned out to be, you know, 50-50 at best, a proposition. At best, Daily White House press room uh, gaggle often provoked more questions for President Trump than settled, you know, issues. Another, I mean, with Sarah Huckabee out there, she became part of the issue because you have to be tough to represent a president like Trump. So she became the issue. You know, does she show the media disrespect? And then, and then because of the way she handled it, it was almost always a follow-up. It was almost always the, you know, the daily news cycle would have uh, an attempt to get the president's message out through Sarah, Sarah uh, Huckabee. But then because of all the controversy of both the issues and of Sarah, the, the next news cycle contained the challenge of, well, let's did, did did President Trump speak to this to correct what Sarah said yesterday? So she, as as good a, as skilled as she is, the job was getting the best of her. Clearly, another method had to be designed to feed the beast while protecting President Trump. Point. Aside from a cancerous relationship between President Trump and the media, what is it that a president dislikes most about facing the media on a regular basis? Well, there is the question first, for most of the time, how much time do I lose spending with them? Another factor is, how do I choose the reporters that will be less hostile over the ones who are out to gut me? How do I control the pacing and, most important, the ending, the cutoff of questions without appearing evasive or pugnacious? And, of course, lastly, but maybe firstly, how do I make this traditionally negative event something that works for me? That is how, can the st that, that is how staging and choreography being manipulated in your favor can actually transform the conventional media event. And Donald Trump had the answer. Point. Considering the aforementioned drawbacks to traditional press conferences, which the president ultimately but not easily controls, you know, in terms of how he looks, this president for the first time ever came up with a system to nearly beat the media house and look good at the same time. I ask you to notice, as I started this bit today, I ask you to note, please tune in to the top of the hour on Fox or CNN or maybe MSNBC, top of the hour. And in the first segment somewhere, you will see segments of the president doing something that you've seen before, and it will refresh your recollection. And you must salute Donald Trump and or his staff for this. 
Start with the most frequent terms on which a president engages the media. You know, in a room, taking questions, trapped. He can't do anything about follow-up questions. He can't, you know, and all he can do is walk off the stage. What Donald Trump has done is political jujitsu. He's turned that around. Let's call it the Trump helicopter shuffle. If you've seen President Trump interacting with the national media in the last, oh, I'd say six months or more, you have done so exclusively through one method, the presidential helicopter on the White House lawn walkthrough. Here is how it works and why. Rather than be trapped in any formal setting where the president cannot control the agenda, the president's media team brilliantly figured out the staging and choreography required to enable the president to fulfill his press duties, at least seemingly so, and to control it more than the voracious vultures in the media, all out to pick his bones, would have dreamed. It was simple. Here's how it works and why. Rather than be trapped in that formal setting, as I mentioned, uh, the president does his helicopter shuffle. The media are all roped in in a section of the White House that you don't see. You hear the gaggle of reporters, but you don't see them. They cannot move or surge toward the president. They must stay within the roped, the roped off small area. And, and this is really important, again, they're not co-stars of the show. This is not material where they could say, oh, uh, here's me crushing the president today with something. You don't see the press. You don't give them a story particular to their network. You never see them. So we have a group of reporters shouting questions simultaneously and apparently rudely to President Trump as he strolls from his White House office out to the lawn with the presidential helicopter beating, beating. The blades are beating. And he, the president and president only, is seen as deciding on a moment's notice, okay, yes, I'll, I'll turn, I'll, pivot, I'll physically pivot and go back toward uh, these unwashed people. Uh, I will pause for my extraordinarily busy breakneck schedule, which you can see here. I'm, 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 de I'm detaining a waiting, I'm detaining a waiting helicopter, not just any waiting helicopter, Air Force effing one I'm detaining to go speak to the press. He stops, he pivots, he approaches the press gaggle. In terms of visuals, as we call them in the biz, Trump has already won the visual war. You have a tremendously busy president of the United States, leader of the free world, rushing to his waiting Marine One helicopter. So urgent is the weight of business with which you must immediately deal that it requires this helicopter brought to the White House lawn. What could it be? What world crisis is this president right now jetting off to take care of? But first, he's going to pivot. He's going to speak to the press. See? He already has that part of theater down, executed, and won. Next, President Trump walks near, but not right up to the press gaggle. 
Remember, we never see them. They sound like a gaggle of geese in mating season with a snowplow. I mean, they're, they've gone berserk. They, they sound crazy. The president says, okay, I'll take a few questions. And the instant he does, he picks. He picks. And what I really mean to say is here, he eliminates. President Trump in this setup picks. They've decided before he leaves the building, you're going to talk to John Roberts of Fox first. You're going to speak to so-and-so of this next. And then third would be this person. After that, you pick friendlies, stay away from hostels. He doesn't do it absolutely. But the thing is, the mix of the people, the number of vultures to the number of people who actually want to do a straight news story has been leveled by this. Because President Trump picks, meaning he excludes as well. So the first reporters allowed a precious question are chosen. It is a choice that is exclusively the president's. If he doesn't like the question or the questioner, he cuts off the question and goes to another subject that suits him and maybe goes to somebody else before anyone realizes what has happened. The original question or questioner has had his knees chopped from under him and he is virtually warned that unfriendly questions will provoke an unfriendly and uncooperative non-answer. Because in this setup, the president decides with whom he will speak when. The president decides who gets to ask a question. The president is sending a message when he decides who gets questions and who doesn't. And we all understand what that is about. In this setup, President Trump is already controlling 75% of everything important in a press conference. Now, you may have noticed that any question the president does not like, he will. This was perfected by the master, Ronald Reagan. The president will cup a hand to his ear and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I really can't hear you. I can't hear you because the blades of the massive Marine One, president of the United States of America helicopter which I am detaining to talk to you these few moments, are calling me. Do you have something important? Or, or just that question? And then pick someone else with a friendlier question. And notice, what permits the president to do this is the confusion of the staging, the, the choreography. Here he is, president, straining to hear an answer of those shouted by this mob of ruffians, as he keeps himself yet moments more from this obviously important helicopter trip to some unknown but presumed piece of statesmanship important to the world. So the helicopter is a tremendously, crucially important part of the choreography. It sets this entire stage that, you know, the president in a rush to get to X to deal with Z Stop today for a moment to speak with national reporters on the White House lawn. The entire thing is, wow, wow, we caught him. He was on his way to X to deal with Z. That, there's a presidential helicopter. Crucially, the helicopter is probably the most important part of the choreography. It's always there. It's always noisy. It's always reminding those of us watching the president 
that he must go. He must go. He must go. He must go. Hello, I must be going. And therefore, any question to which he responds is Trump going out of his way in this tremendously important situation with the extraordinarily important man on a crucial mission for mankind. And yet he still has to tear himself away from all media business and the questions, all of which he would love to answer. But to be fair, I have to go. The helicopter is everything. The helicopter is, is the con. The helicopter tells us how important the situation is before we ever think of anything else. What we do is hear that helicopter and see him walking toward it and say, oh, I'm torn here from this crucial mission. All during this time, the, the, the critical theatrical performance, which screams important, important, important. Donald Trump is the star, and this is an exciting moment, and that's that. Because pictures say more than words. Those pictures tell that story. Marshall McLuhan might have granted me, uh, might have granted me a yield to say the medium is the message. In this case, the photos, the visuals are the message. I told you the Larry Speaks story, didn't I? In fact, it may be in my notes here, so I'll wait and then I'll mention it later. So here's the here's the press the, the press is gaggled. They're shouting at the Mr. President, Mr. President, and the wop 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 of the helicopter on the White House lawn. Marine guards reminds us incessantly that we're witnessing history. And finally, does the president hold up both hands in a somewhat apolic gesture, as in, "I'd love to spend all day here with you, mate, but I really would, but I have to go save the world." is written all over the gesture. President Trump breaks away reluctantly, reluctantly, like James Brown leaving the stage. And he heads to the very simple of what makes presidential power powerful. Marine One. The blades of which are now in a frenzy and straining against another moment of waiting to carry the President of the United States to his fateful meeting, or whatever it is, and more often than not could turn out to be a lunch with the American Turnip Growers Association. But we don't know that, and it doesn't matter. What we have just seen is a profoundly busy, important president tearing himself away from that helicopter and that moment to answer what are generally hostile questions on the White House lawn. And it's the only access to him they get. If they don't like the setup, as we to use professional terms, tough titty. This is the only access. Trump has decided all of the staging and choreography whereby the national media get to ask him a question, or not, that day. They control it. President Trump jets off. What could be more fair? What could be a more stirring demonstration of freedom of the press in action. What could be more presidential? Point. This, this is how the relatively simple staging and choreography works for what has become a, a virtually daily kabuki theater, a kabuki dance, 
It's totally rejuvenated uh, the White House press corps strategy. Now see the president waiting for his helicopter, Marine One, apparently jousting with reporters and the sense generally that he held his own or got the better of them. And he did. He did because of the visuals. He controlled the staging. He controlled the choreography. He controlled the visuals. He controlled the message. Even as the most important members of the national media picked at him, President Trump was going over the heads of the media on the White House lawn, whose own networks were far less concerned about the audio of today's press conference whoop, 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 than they are with the pictures of it. But taken together, the audio and video, compared with the screaming mob you never see, what is the show here? That's too easy. Remember, and President Trump did, there is a reason why we call it television. There's a reason why we call it television. Anyone who lives by that will be successful in politics. Not guaranteed, but anyone who is ignorant of it or defies it will be unsuccessful. This relatively new arrangement for President Trump's live media uh, is so far, or his media availability, is so far a game changer from the old model. And most of them don't even know what you know right now. I am, if you'll forgive me, reminded of a war story in my career. This is the Larry Speaks thing. I happen to have just finished a group meeting in the White House concerning a Senate race that the White House was getting involved with that I was directing. And I happened to observe a now uh, famous explosion, well, famous at least among the insiders in the media, a famous explosion between a very senior national print reporter, okay, from the Washington Post, that's as far as I'm going to go, and presidential press secretary Larry Speaks. This reporter um, was dissatisfied with the answers he had gotten in the Larry Speaks briefing. I mentioned, yes, Larry was press secretary uh, for Ronald Reagan. And this uh, very, very prominent Washington Post reporter, I was get, getting ready to leave the building or go to another place in the building, and I noticed this reporter break away from the pack, leave the room, and follow Larry Speaks. Now, this isn't done. And I watched, and he followed him down a hallway, and I was, you know, I was allowed in that hallway. So I just kind of walked a few steps to see what, at least I could see anything that was going to happen. Now, this reporter, this journalist, <clears throat> went right up to Speaks, which again is a violation of protocol, and, and and asked him another question. Violation of protocol. Uh, gentlemanly protocol of the press and the rules of the White House. You might say he assaulted Larry Speaks. I mean, he, he virtually did by law, but not quite. In any case, this guy walks up to Larry Speaks as if poking him, jabbing him in the, you know, the chest with his finger and says, Hey, Speaks, I'm going to tell you something. If you won't confirm those numbers for me, I'm going to print them tomorrow anyway. Larry Speaks, presidential spokesman, 
looked this fellow up and down, and then he looked around to see who might be listening. I guess I wasn't important enough to worry about. <laughs> or maybe I was loyal enough not to worry about. And he looked not just at this famous reporter, but he looked through him. And one of the few times I'd ever seen Larry Speaks, you know, very angry. He was a very level, very level guy. He looks right through this reporter and he says, Tonight you will file a newspaper story nobody's going to read. Tonight we will have President Reagan on video in the Rose Garden being cheered and surrounded by children with 50 American flags waving as they approach the lectern and an opportunity to touch the president. That will run on every television facility in the free world. Do you grasp what kind of picture that is compared to your numbers story in the newspaper tomorrow? Fuck you, fuck your newspaper, and fuck your chances of getting to see the president again while I'm here. End quote. <laughs> this is what I was witnessing in real time. My first experience of live political porn. I replayed it in my head over and over. Made me want to touch my doppelganger. Nothing but this would ever do again. Real politics, it had to be. That having been said, our lesson today, boys and girls, and patriots of all ages, he who controls the visuals and, to a degree, sound, controls the message, which controls the politics which is exactly what President Trump has managed to do now with his regular White House helicopter news briefing shuffle. He turned it from a minefield into a field of Trump dreams and postscript. Aren't we glad God made political consultants? Wow, I am. I am most grateful for your attentions. I regard my tweets as more important than my podcast because even though the audio realm is more fun and generally more important than the print, to, to, to cast general, general nets here, the fact is I stick to many elements of one topic in a podcast. Whereas my tweets over a 24-hour day, every one of them, virtually every one of them, unless I'm just being a wise-ass, making a wise-ass comment, but any substantive posting I make on Twitter could be its own podcast. So I regard my tweets as more important than my podcast, and thus um, hope you will consider that in measuring the time that you have to devote to either or ideally both. But uh, please try to get a taste of both if you can. I'm on Twitter all the time. Generally, I hit it for the first time in um, mid-afternoon and then stay on it intermittently uh, till midnight. It's pretty much pretty much do that to 12, 10 to 12 hours thing every day on, on Twitter, believe it or not. And also, at the same time, 
I am uh, re reestablishing each day that I am a curator. And this is my pitch, by the way. You know, wonder what my pitch would be to an, another employer because I'm about to make one. And I will say something very much like this. I am not so much a curator of news, although I do know everything that's going on at any given second. There's nothing you can tell me unless you're reporting original news that has not yet been broadcast or hit the wires. Unless you know something nobody else knows, I know it. And I know it at the second, any second you want to ask me about it. Plus, I have something to say about it, but it's more than that. To do what I do, which is original insight, means that I not only know what's going on at any given moment, I can make an utterly unique, cogent analysis of what it means and what's going to happen next about all those things that are going on. Insight that no one else has. Insight and original. No one's had it yet. My my dear co-respondents, if you only knew the number of bits I had to scratch because Rush, most likely, the, the, the 90% of the bits, comments, prospective podcast tweets that I scratch, that I have to abandon, are because Rush said it first, and he usually said it an hour or two before I wanted to post it. That's not a brag. It just happens to be a... I mean, it. I could see why it would be taken as a brag, for, for me anyway. I mean, I uh, Rush is my hero. Uh, he's a good friend. Um, we correspond. He's read my stuff on the air. When Al Franken went on the air with... Uh, what was it, Air America? I wrote an op-ed, I think it was for the Wall Street Journal, but uh, Rush read my op-ed on the air. The whole thing, as I recall. Anyway, so uh, that's because I think a lot like Rush. I'm not saying Rush thinks a lot like me, but let's do the inverse. I think a lot like Rush. And so often there are words and phrases and concepts that occur to us at the same time. Usually, I get to it a day ahead. Now, I suppose that is a kind of a boast. And um, I almost wish to withdraw it in the event it ever reached Rush. I'm not sure he'd take it the right way. But I think he knows I'm a loyal friend, and he would want to hear the uh, context in which it was said. I am uh, i didn't plan on any of this that I'm telling you right now, so I, I hope you you don't mind. The, the politics is over for today, so if you want to... If you want to get the heck out of here, get the heck out of Dodge, you do that. And I want to mention one other thing in this in this boastful category, uh, and that is I, I kind of pride myself on the fact that I don't have to worry about anybody else stealing my insight or my first. Uh, I worry about Rush. I listen to, watch, read everybody else in national media. I never worry about any of them, including the other radio host you might think I would worry about. I don't. <laughs> Not for a second. With that host, I could have three weeks 
You could lock me in a closet for three weeks and then let me start. And it's someone I don't wish to offend, uh, who also happens to be a friend. Um, but, well, I just won't get into it. Someday I'll tell you, and I'll tell you the whys. The whys are more important. I'm not looking for excuses to dislike people. But. I'm awfully glad that you are here. Um, I've told you where you can reach me most of the time. If you would like to use the new email, I don't mention it online. I mention it only here. That is all lowercase, no spaces, jtseverin at gmail.com. That's J-T-S-E-V-E-R-I-N at gmail.com. And anything you wish to say there to me, say it. Um, any constructive criticism is, as you may have seen, demonstrated already, very much welcomed and acted on most of the time. And if you have something that you would like said on the radio attached to your name, then I hope that you will say so. You know, just, just put quotes around what you want to say and put for airplay there for airplay. So I've got some evidence that if uh, I, you send me something, if you're, if you're, if you're tweeting hammered or you're emailing hammered and the next day you say, Oh my God, did I say that? Did I send that to Jay Severin? You know, I, I'll have some defense if I posted it. Um, all right. We will see each other here soon. Very soon. Um, give me some follows from your followers. If you would, or, you know, recommend them, uh, please. I'm planning on making a, a jump in the quality and nature of this product. I hope sometime in the fall it's going to depend on how many of us are listening and uh, tweeting. So I'll be back very soon, and until then, I shall see you momentarily. And again, until after midnight, I am sure, after midnight on Twitter, this has been... Invasion of the Giant Pod Pundit, number 55. I'm Jay Severin, Excelsior.